worship. Good morning, Bethany. So good to see you here this morning, to be back with you, to be able to worship the Lord together in this place. Uh, it's, just being honest, this is a little surreal to stand behind this pulpit that I've preached many, many messages from over the five years the Lord allowed us to, to serve here. You know, celebrating a homecoming in the midst of COVID-19 is, is a little different, it's a little strange, but I'm so glad that uh, Tamara and I and our boys were able to come down here today and be with you, a church that we love dearly, that we pray for often. And I tune in oftentimes just to see what Nathan's preaching on, see what, uh, what's going on in the life of this congregation. I want to thank Pastor Nathan for the invitation to come, for his leadership of this church at this particular season of life for you. Uh, I'm thankful for the chance to share this pulpit, brother, and I, I've enjoyed getting to know him through phone conversations and just hearing his heart and his love for you and his love for the gospel uh, ministry which God has called him. It's also a joy to see Jason. I've made several hires and been a part of many processes of calling people, and I think calling Jason Gunner here as worship pastor at Emmanuel is one of the best. What a blessing he is to see him and Candace now having three children and young Luke pulling up the rear and seeing them grow, and what a joy that is. I haven't met Jake yet. just met him for the first time this morning, and him and Brittany, but... Uh, I, I watch you from a distance and get a glean uh, of who you are and uh, hear nothing but wonderful things about you and your ministry here as well. What a, what a staff God has assembled together here for you as a congregation. To, yeah, give them, give them appreciation. When I think about homecoming, I, it's really a spiritual family reunion, just like you and I would go to a family reunion uh, and spend hours telling stories and reliving the times of old. Uh, this week I was taking time just to reflect back on some of the memories that I had while I was here at Bethany. Uh, our time that we spent here from 2010 to 2015. So this, there were many memories I could share, but I just wanted to share a few that are prominent in my heart and my mind. And those of you that are newer into the church, you came after we left. You don't even have a clue who I am. Just bear with me, if you will. And let me just uh, reminisce for just a minute, go, go down memory lane. You know, some of these memories I have just remind us that the church family is called to laugh together. There's joyous times. I came here as a young pastor. This was the first church I'd ever pastor. I was wet behind the ears coming out of youth ministry, never pastoring a church like this. I didn't have a clue what I was doing. I was young. I was dumb. And I never will forget the day T.J. Kelly joined this church. Now, T.J.'s not here today, so I can pick on him. He and Taylor are about to expect their child, and what a joy, blessing that's going to be. But T.J. came from the back pew, and he walked down front during the invitation time, and he expressed to me he wanted to join the church. Well, I knew T.J. I knew he was, I could joke with him. I could have some fun with him, and at that time, he was single. So I said, I got him down here, and I said, this is TJ, here's what he's here for. And I said, TJ is single, ladies, I want you to know that. And he's on the market, he's got a great job, he's a, and I was just going on and on about TJ. Well, in the middle of it, TJ looks over at me with this look on his face of, like, shock. And he goes, my girlfriend is sitting in the back. And I look at him, I didn't know he had a girlfriend at that time, and bless Pat, she's back there just waving at me like this. So I had to backtrack, put my foot in my mouth, and I was like, no, he's off the market. But I, I haven't done that since. I learned a valuable lesson that day with TJ. One of my other great memories is when I went to do Norma McClellan's funeral service, graveside service. She was our neighbor for, for years, her and Robert, and what a godly woman she was. And 
We went to that graveside service that day, and, and I was doing this, the, the officiating, and George Gant was standing here next to Herman Castleberry, next to Claude Summerlin. You get the picture. Well, they had that green skirt that goes around the hole that you dig down in the ground where the casket sits, and I'm over there glossing away about who Norman McClellan was and reading Scripture, and all of a sudden I hear George Gant, Look out, boys, I'm going down! George had scooted his feet accidentally up to the edge of that green skirt, and he was falling down in the hole. Herman Castleberry, thank goodness he's about 6'5", reaches down and grabs George by the arm. Now he's falling in. Claude's got Herman Castleberry by the back of the pants, and he's pulling him. I tell you what, looking back now, we laugh. In the moment, it was a difficult, scary situation. I thought that was going to be the day George goes down with Norma, in the bottom of that. It's memories like that that I'll never forget. Uh, we were sharing some of those last night just with some of you, and, and what a joy that was. But, you know, some of these memories I have here remind me that the church also cries together. I think one of the defining parts of the ministry here was walking with Bailey Bird and her family and Keith and Donna Kelly and their family through the darkest, most difficult season of their entire life. Here's a young girl in her 20s. Here's a girl that's 17 years old in high school, both of them battling cancer, both moms and dads and all the family, and they are in the same church in this community. It's very rare. It's very unique, and I haven't heard about that happening since. But just challenging you to rise up in faith and to come around them and to watch you love them and support them and minister to them, to provide breakfast buffets, to do whatever we could to raise money for them, to take some type of load off of them in that season. I, I, I just think back to those years and the difficulty of trying to keep faith and trying to encourage, and you rose to the occasion. I, I, I want to take a moment and just thank you for praying for, for me and Tamara. Uh, when one member of the church body suffers, we all suffer. Now, these past two years have been some of the most darkest, the most difficult, some of the most intense spiritual warfare I've ever experienced in my entire life. And many of you knew about that situation. Many of you prayed for us by name, praying for reconciliation. Many of you uh, dropped in to make a visit at a key time as we were just facing the full-out assault of Satan. Satan comes to kill, he comes to steal, and he comes to destroy. And he tried to destroy the very foundation of our marriage relationship that was caused through sin. And yet we stand today, now don't let this suit fool you, I stand here as a broken man today, and my wife is a broken woman, and we have a broken marriage, it's not perfect, but God, through his grace, through his reconciliation power, through the, through the prayers of God's saints, we stand before you as a picture of what God can do in any marriage, how there's hope in any and every situation, and somebody told me in the midst of the darkness, said, your mess is going to become your ministry. And your time of testing is going to become your testimony, and we've already seen that. Just the number of people that have come out of the shadows seeking out guidance, seeking out support, seeking out help. We speak from that place of brokenness now that I didn't speak from before. And I'm thankful that we are together. I'm thankful that we celebrated 16 years and that our family is whole and, and, and made whole again through the power of Jesus Christ. We cry together as a church family. We laugh together as a church family, but I, more than anything else, I'm so thankful for the faith steps that we took together as a church family that you continue to take under Pastor Nathan's leadership. Uh, we constructed the youth building, and I remember uh, 
we, we had money in savings and we still owed $50,000 on it. Well, here I am, new pastor, young pastor, and I'm like, well, this is my first building campaign. Let's see how we're going to rev everybody up to give. And following Sunday, y'all took care of that. You paid it off in one Sunday. So uh, it was just amazing to watch the Lord do that. Uh, we launched the Reach Out strategy, and Billy Barnes was telling me how that's still being used in positive ways, how you're stewarding your money to help meet needs locally, internationally. So praise God for that. Reaching out with evangelistic teams and hearing stories of People being saved, bringing in new families, going on mission trips. I remember Jeremy Haiti. I'm looking at John Wallace, how he led a team to construct a chapel up there while the rest of us uh, did some uh, medical missions. And I spent one week with Robert Kinnett. And if you've ever spent one day with Robert Kinnett, you know what one week with Robert Kinnett, uh, what a memory that was. I'll never forget it. Taking trips to Rio Bamba, Ecuador, and seeing some of you deacons step out in faith for the, and go on international mission trips and setting the pace for the congregation. And then you encouraged me as a church to pursue the doctorate degree. I sought the church out and said, this has been a desire of mine for many years, and you gave me the time off. And then the deacon body rose to the occasion unprompted by me and wanted to support financially. And last May, after many years, I completed that, praise God. So I could not have done that without you, without your love, and without your support. You know, as I was thinking about different types of messages that I've heard on homecomings, uh, I, I want to go a little different direction than maybe what's expected. I want to speak to the uniqueness of the times in which we find ourselves living as Christians in this land. I want to bring a word to encourage you this morning, but also a word to challenge you to consider what our response as Christians should be in light of all that's taking place in our country. You know, if you just reflect back to the last seven months and, and what we have experienced, these are peculiar days in which we live. These are unique times. These are interesting days. So many different arenas of life being impacted in society. Our churches are being impacted. Our homes are being impacted. Our family life is being impacted. And this new season of normal is settling in while the old normal of what we thought we knew is now gone away. And so if you have a copy of God's Word with you today, I want you to turn with me to Psalm 11. Psalms is found in the very center of your Bible. If you would just take your Bible and split it down the middle like that, you'll come to the book of Psalms and find Psalm 11. I want to read from there in just a few moments. You know, foundations are critical in any building project. Those of you in construction know that you can have a beautiful outside facade. You can put all these fancy windows and doors and you can have some some vinyl siding that looks gorgeous. But if the foundation is cracked, If the foundation is faulty, then all that bells and whistles on the outside facade, it doesn't mean anything. It's going to be destroyed. You remember Jesus taught us this principle in Matthew 7. You remember? He told a story about two men that built houses, one on the sand and one on the rock. And the man that built his house on the rock was able to withstand the storms that raged against it. Why? Because it was built on solid foundation. Foundations can make or they can break a house. And I believe when you step back and you look at the big picture perspective of just what's happened over the past seven months in our land, you see the foundations of our country, co- country fracturing. You see it crumbling. We're on a path to destruction if there's not a tidal wave of life change, of heart change by the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So how do we respond as Christians to what we've been experiencing, knowing the foundations are cracked, 
Knowing the overall spiritual picture in the land is darker and darker with each passing day. Well, thankfully, the Lord has given us encouragement. And we see it as we look at how David responds to a season of danger in his life. When the circumstances around him appeared to be dark and dismal and and bleak. Psalm 11 was written almost 3,000 years ago now. But the truth of what we see here is just as relevant for you and I as Christians living in America in 2020. There is a key question that David asked here in verse 3 that I want you to think about and consider with me this morning. And then I want to answer the question right here in this passage by looking at how David responds in his own life. I want to ask, would you stand in honor of the reading of God's word? Psalm 11. In the Lord, I take refuge. How then can you say to me, flee like a bird to your mountain? For look, the wicked bend their bows. They set their arrows against the strings to shoot from the shadows at the upright in heart. When the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is on his heavenly throne. He observes the sons of men. His eyes examine them. The Lord examines the righteous, but the wicked and those who love violence, his soul hates. On the wicked he will rain fiery coals and burning sulfur. A scorching wind will be their lot. For the Lord is righteous. He loves justice. Upright men will see his face. Please be seated. I want to organize this psalm around four broad headings that will help you and I capture the central truth God would have for us as Christians living in this land. In the first part of this psalm, what you see is a predicament of danger in David's life. Now, we don't know what creates the danger for David. We don't know the exact circumstances that led David to write Psalm 11 because they have been lost in history. But it's clear that when you look at David's life, He found himself in dire straits. His back is up against the wall. There is an X on David's back, and the enemies are coming after him in full assault. In fact, the implication is that if he does not take off running for the mountains, they are going to hunt him down, shoot arrows at him, and destroy his life. Perhaps as you consider the violence in our land, perhaps as you consider the widespread protest, and now... And living in the midst of a pandemic, maybe for you this morning, there's a sense of danger in your own heart that has been intensified. Maybe those of you that own a gun, you've pulled that gun closer to your nightstand. Or you, maybe you've entertained more critically what, the what-if situations that, of life if the chaos, if the violence moves to a community like this. You see, when we see all of these events unfold, it heightens tensions and fears in all of us. For our most basic need, and that is safety and security, there is there's a predicament in David's life. But as David finds himself in the midst of this dangerous situation, in the midst of this uncertainty, what you begin to see is he's listening to a proposal of despair. Starting in the last part of verse 1 there, we learn that David is being counseled. He's being advised by a team of people trying to tell him, David, here's what you need to do in light of this dangerous situation that's imminent, in light of this safety and need for security. Now, we know it's a group of people because the word you there in verse 1 is plural. 
meaning more than one. And what is the proposal from these advisors in David's life? It is flee. David, you need to take off fleeing for two reasons. One, so you would spare your life. But number two, because the foundations are being destroyed. The advice that David is hearing, it's grounded, it is rooted in despair and hopelessness and helplessness. And as this group continues to advise David, they raise the all-important question that I want you to focus on here in verse 3. I call it a principle of destruction. There it is. Look at verse 3. When the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? Now, what are these foundations that David is referring to here in verse 3? Some scholars suggest that the foundations is a reference to David and the key leaders that gathered around him, that if David and his key leaders were put to death, then what would God's people, the people of Israel, how would they respond? Other scholars suggest that the foundations being referred to here talk about the city of Jerusalem. The city of Jerusalem was a centerpiece of worship and centerpiece of life for the Jewish people, that if the temple's destroyed, if Jerusalem was destroyed, how would God's people be able to bounce back and respond? Augustine was an early church father. He suggested that the foundations here in verse 3 were the doctrines of the Christian faith. We don't know exactly where what the foundations speak of, but there is a principle laid out before David here, and I don't want you to miss it. It's this. When the foundations are broken, when the foundations are crumbling, what can God's people do? What is our responsibility as Christians living in a broken, fallen world impacted by sin where authority is mocked, where lawlessness is king, and where division is amplified? Now I want you to stop for a moment, and I want you to consider with me the broken foundations that we see in our land just over the past seven months. I took time this week, and I jotted down six of these that I observed from my perspective, and you just see if... You would agree or add to this. First of all, it is the foundation of the dignity of human life. We no longer value human life anymore. Not just black lives, not just white lives, but even life that begins at the moment of conception in the womb. Do you realize that since 1973 in Roe v. Wade, there have been over 50 million abortions that have been carried out in clinics all across our country? Listen, church, the number one killer of our day is not COVID-19. It is abortions taking place in backstreet areas and clinics that are evil and wicked every single day. The foundation God established for the value of human life from the moment of conception in the womb all the way to the tomb has been under attack and being rejected and the foundation is fractured. There's a second foundation. That's the foundation of marriage and family. You just consider the decisions made by the Supreme Court over the past several years. you got the legalization of homosexual marriage. You consider the news coverage, the media coverage for the LBGTQ community and all of their causes. And it seems to be getting stranger in every passing day. Perhaps you saw the video that was circulating last week, a little TED Talk that a woman gave, and she stood up and she was arguing for why pedophilia is to be seen as a normal, acceptable sexual orientation. Right alongside heterosexual and, and homosexuality. Unbelievable. 
Again, the foundation of marriage, the foundation of sexuality, God established back in the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 1, it's been twisted, it's been distorted, and it's caused mass confusion in so many lives and affected so many families. And the foundation has been crumbling for a while now, and we, but we see the fractures very clearly in our day. Third is the foundations of racial unity and justice that are crumbling. Whites pointing the finger at blacks. Blacks pointing fingers at whites. And none of us were around during the tensions leading up to the time of the Civil War, but we are on that verge again in certain ways if something doesn't change. Broken foundation. The foundation of authority. Now, it starts in the home with disrespect from children and teenagers towards their parents. Now, Billy Graham, great evangelist, is now going on to be the Lord. He said this. He said, if a child is allowed to be disrespectful to his parents, they will not have true respect for anyone. Moms and dads, we need to pay attention to that. It, it, Disrespect in the home leads to a total disregard for any standard of authority in society as a whole, including police officers and those putting their life on the line every single day. It's a foundation of authority that is fractured. Fifth is the foundation of morality. The lines of black and white, the lines of right and wrong are to us are presented as though they are totally blurred, that every area is now a gray area. That right is now wrong and wrong is made to appear right so that it would then be tolerated and then be accepted and then be embraced. The broken foundation. Lastly, six is the foundation of religious liberty. Boy, this one's right in our face right now. On July 24th, Supreme Court denied a request from a church in Nevada that was challenging the governor of Nevada's mandate that you could only have 50 people or less worshiping in a public gathering. Supreme Court stands by the governor's order limiting that. Here's the problem. Casinos weren't limited to 50. Gyms weren't limited to 50. The bowling alleys weren't limited to 50. It was only the public places of worship. We've seen this not only in Nevada, we see it in California. Governor of California mandates no public worship. Well, there's a guy named John MacArthur. Many of you know him. You've listened to his teaching, his preaching. He leads Grace Community Church. Last Sunday, he said, no, we're going to obey God and we're not, rather than obey men. He led his congregation to worship. 3,000 of them showed up in a strong presence of unity, of boldness, and voice. And I would encourage you to keep your eye on what's going on in Southern California with Grace Community Church because it's going to be a pace setter and set the stage for what's going to happen. Religious liberty and battles over our freedom to worship and to gather is really just now intensified. You see, I could do an entire series of sermons just laying out each one of these foundations and then God's response, but that's not what I want to focus on today. I want to just put the question back before you, before us, the same question David raised here in verse 3. If the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? Now, do you ever, you ever think about this? I know I do. I start looking at everything that's going on around me, all these fractured and broken foundations, and I start thinking, you know what, I'm only one person. I'm one Christian, I'm one father, I'm one husband, I'm one pastor. What, what can I really do about any of this? I'm not the president. I'm not in the political arenas where votes are cast and bills are passed. Do you, do you ever feel that way? I'm just one Christian. I live in a community here in the 
in the South. And so what in the world can I do about any of this? And what difference can I really make in light of everything that's going on? Well, here's a few options we've got as Christians. One option is nothing. We, we can choose as Christians just to do nothing and sit back and watch. Just let them keep fracturing. Let them keep being destroyed. We can live our lives with an attitude of hopelessness and despair and defeat. We can sort of just walk around with woe is me is the, the attitude of our hearts. We can simply determine that we're all victims of our circumstances. Christians can simply sit back and we can do nothing. Another option we have is what I call passivism, inactivity. This is where you know something needs to be done, but you just feel helpless or you, you're not sure exactly what to do. Uh, that has any value or significance. So we know we got to do something, but we just lack the courage and we re- lack the resolve to step out and do anything about it. It was Edward Burke that was attributed for saying this famous quote that you hear a lot, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good people to do nothing. Inactivity, passivism. So we can do nothing, we can be inactive and passive. Another option is we can choose to live in fear. We can allow fear to paralyze us so that we worry every single day and build anxiety within about safety, about security, about protection, about peace in our land. We can, we can hunker down in our safe spot and just kind of keep the community and other people at arm's distance away. We can, as churches, we can allow COVID-19 to totally paralyze any ministry that we attempt to do to our community. We can stop trying to evangelize lost people. We can live more in fear than we do in faith, and we can stop being the salt and light that Jesus called us to be. Those are some options out there on the table for us in light of the times we're living in. But when you look at this passage, you notice that David doesn't choose any of those responses. Instead, we see the fourth part of this psalm. It is a pronouncement of decision. As the foundations are crumbling in David's life, the uncertainty of the situation seems to be lingering around a little longer David knows he's got to make a choice and a determination in his heart and within his will. He chooses to live with settled confidence in the Lord. When everything else is crumbling around us, God's people, the righteous, we can trust in the heart and the will and the ways of our Lord. It's sort of like the young boy that was on a a plane ride. The plane was experiencing incredible turbulence. The plane was going up and it was going down left and right. And there was a lady sitting next to the boy and she couldn't understand why he was so calm, why he was so peaceful, why he was laughing and having fun playing while all that was going on. After several minutes of watching the little boy, she'd had enough. She looked over to the little boy and she said, little boy, stop it. Stop having all that fun. How can you be having fun when we're all in this turbulence that we're experiencing? The little boy took his hand and he leaned over and he put it on top of the, the woman's hand and he said, Lady, my daddy is the pilot. Listen, when your daddy is the pilot, you can handle the turbulence because you know he's got it all under control. And friend, the same is true in your life when you know the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of, of your soul. When you know the Lord is the pilot of your life because the more you get to know the Lord the more confidence you have in who He is. And the more you learn about His ways and you learn about His character and His attributes, the stronger your trust in Him builds. I want you to look back at where David's confidence in the Lord actually comes from in Psalm 11. It starts with him shifting 
his eyes off of his circumstance, and he sets them on the Lord. Look at verse 1, how it starts. In the Lord I take refuge. A refuge is a protection of fortress in a time of storm. I want you to notice that David, in that moment of danger and uncertainty, he does not flee to a place. To find security and protection. Instead, we see David is confident in a person, and that is the Lord. And the reason he can take refuge in the Lord is because he's reminded there in verse 4 that the Lord is the creator. He's the king over heaven and all of earth. Look at verse 4. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is on His heavenly throne. He observes the sons of men. His eyes examine them. So because God is the transcendent King over heaven and over earth, who has the power over all the earth, we can seek shelter in Him when the foundations crumble. You see, when our eyes look in the right place, the circumstances don't seem in front of us don't seem quite as scary anymore. Because if God's aware of the threats, and God has all power to preserve us through the threats, then we don't have to panic. There's a shift of his eyes off his circumstance to the Lord in the midst of the foundations crumbling. Where else does David's confidence come from here? You see it down in verse 5. David understands that what he's going through is a test of the Lord and the substance of his faith. Look at verse 5. Notice what the scripture says. It says, the Lord examines the righteous. That's here in the NIV. If you're reading out a New American Standard, it says the Lord tests the righteous. If you're reading out of King James, it says the Lord trieth the righteous. So as he looks at the danger in his life and the situation, David's going, hey, it ain't the wicked that are coming against me who are testing me. Yeah, there's an imminent threat. But ultimately, the, God is testing. God is trying. God is examining the righteous. His people to see if they will forget him. See if they're going to panic and bail out. To see if they're going to try to fix their problems in their own strength and in their own understanding. Or whether they're going to grow in faith. Whether they're going to trust him. Whether they're going to watch for his deliverance. You see, when I read the Bible, there are many other people besides David who God tested the substance of their faith. You think about Abraham. God tests Abraham, Genesis says, and Tells him to take Isaac, the promised son, and go and sacrifice him. You think about Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. God tested their faith as they're thrown into the fiery furnace. You think about Job. We have one entire book of the Bible, 42 chapters. That's all about how God tests the life of one righteous man as he goes through trial after trial after trial in his life. And I want you to listen to what Job says at one point along the way. Job 23, verse 10. But God knows the way that I take. And when he has tested me, I will come forth as gold. You think about the Israelites. Why are they wandering in the wilderness? God's testing them to see if they're going to obey, see if they're going to trust him above everything else until he delivers them, until he brings them into the promised land. Psalm 66 verse 10 says, For you have tried us, O God. You have refined us as silver is Refined. Listen, church, we cannot know all the reasons why God is allowing us to wrestle, why He's allowing us to struggle and continue to go our own way in this land. But don't lose sight of the fact that it's possible that God is testing the substance of the faith of His people. 
of the righteous, those of us that are living throughout the land. He's watching to see where are we going to shift our eyes? And how are we going to respond to the threats and to the danger and to the uncertainty that we find ourselves in? As Pastor John MacArthur closed out his sermon last week, in the face of this mandate from the governor, he made a prophetic word to every Christian, to every church living across the land for such a time as this. This is what he said, quote, This is not a problem to be feared. This is a triumphant hour for the church to be the church. Standing for the glory of our Lord is more important in this hour than I've ever known it in my life. For His glory we will stand and meet and worship and preach the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen. See, through the fire He's refining us as well. Will we pass the test or will we not? David's confidence is in the Lord. It's in the Lord he's taken refuge because he's set his eyes there instead of on his circumstances. He, he sees that God's testing the substance of his faith through all that he's walking through as the foundations are crumbling. There's a, another thing you see here in this psalm, though. David's confidence in the Lord comes from knowing that God himself is righteous. Look down at verse 7. It says, For the Lord is righteous. He loves justice that is god is right in all he is god is right in all that he does and so what can we the church do we can pursue righteousness we can stand for righteousness we can promote what is right not according to our conceived ideas or based on popular opinion but based on the truth of what god's word says And we must promote righteousness in our circles of influence, whether they are small or whether they are great. In fact, 1 John 2, verse 29 says that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of God. So one of the proofs, one of the evidences that comes out of your life and my life that we are truly saved and we have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ is you will As a consistent pattern of your life, you will practice righteousness just as God is righteous. Psalm 106 verse 3 says, How blessed are those who keep justice, who practice righteousness at all times. What gives David confidence ultimately is knowing that God is right and he will make all things right in the end. This world is passing away. The second coming of Jesus Christ is nearer now than when we first believed than it's ever been before. Our adversary, Satan, is intensifying his attacks at every turn, creating division, strife, deception, strongholds, addictions, destruction. And yet we know the end of the story. Christ is Lord over all. Christ will be victorious forever and ever, and He will reign forever and ever in an everlasting kingdom. William Plume captures the heart of this whole passage when he says this, There is always ground of hope to one who trusts in God. All is not lost that is brought into jeopardy. While God lives and reigns, there is hope. We may boldly challenge all who would drive us to despair. However, while confusion may reign around us, I think there's some confusion in our country right now, 
and the true ends of government be forgotten, yet it may well make the hearts of the righteous to rejoice that God is not and cannot be dethroned. All other scepters shall be broken, and all other crowns fall to the ground. But the pious shall ever shout, Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Go back to the question I started with this morning. When the foundations are crumbling, when the foundations are cracking, what can God's people, what can the church, what can the righteous do? Learn something from how David responds in this situation in his life. It starts with us choosing to set our eyes not on our circumstances and the fracturing foundation, but to shift our eyes to the character and have confidence in who the Lord himself is. He rules, he reigns, he sovereignly orchestrates everything that's taken place, and nothing happens in this world without him allowing it to happen or without God ordaining it to happen. It all passes through his hands. We see in David that you have to see this time as a time of testing from the Lord. And he's not testing a wicked world out there. He's going to judge the wickedness of man. One day when the lost person stands before him, he's testing the righteous. The substance of our faith. In light of what we're facing, are we going to be bold? Are we going to live in faith? Are we going to trust the Lord? We seek to live and speak righteousness just as God is righteous and Close out with just two things Jesus said to us, no matter what time we live in. He said, you've got to be salt. He says, you've got to be light. I want to remind you that salt can't preserve unless it is totally mixed throughout whatever it is that it's trying to preserve. Listen, we as Christians, we can't hide and we can't run from the fracture foundations all around us. Instead, we seek to be people of truth in the midst of the lies. We seek to be a picture of love in a world of hate. We have to stand for justice when we have opportunity in every situation and we offer hope to those that are living all around us who are hopeless. He said you've got to be salt. And then he called us to be light. To let the light of Christ in us shine into a dark world. Let me remind you of something. Light shines the brightest in the darkest places. And the more and more spiritually dark this world gets and our country gets, and the more the fracture of the foundation deepens, the greater opportunity for the light of the gospel, the light of Jesus Christ, to shine forth, to infiltrate the darkness, bringing hope into this world. So be salt, be light, be the church. What can the foundations, when the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? Let's pray together this morning. Father, I thank you so much for this body of Christ. I thank you for the leadership of this staff. I thank you for these deacons who serve faithfully week in and week out to meet needs and to address issues in the love of Christ. I thank you for the hearts of your people here. For all the new faces that I see sitting out here that have been reached, families that have been reconciled, families that have been restored, the way you have saved people through the witness and the testimonies of your people here going out into the community, into the highways and byways and sharing the love of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray your blessings upon this church family, that they would be salt, preserving truth in the midst of this community and this world of lies. 
I pray that they would be light, that the light of Christ and each individual person that, that bears the name Christian would, would leave this place today and consider in the spiritual darkness, the light shines the brightest in the darkest places. So, Lord, would you just help us to tr- turn to you, help us to find confidence, not in any place or institution or organization or, or public position, but God, ultimately to find our refuge in a person, and that is you. For you rule all, you know all, you're sovereign over all, and your heart can be trusted. So, Lord, we thank you so much for the opportunity we've had. I thank you for the chance just to come as a broken vessel and share your word once again with your people here. Lord, may you just help us to pray for one another, help us to love one another, help us to spur one another on towards love and good deeds and not to give up and get defeated and get hopeless and live in the brink of despair as though nothing's ever going to change. Lord, help us to do our part step out in faith to trust you. We love you. We praise you. We thank you for who you are. For it's in Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen.